You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. A month of winter behind us, two to go. And what we're being told, we should make the most of cooler weather because this summer could be a big scorcher. But for today, we hear about the work of Richard Tanter over many decades. His work on exposing the role of Pine Gap and other US facilities in Australia, academic at several universities in Australia, and also over 10 years teaching at a Japanese university peace activist to this day, opposing the push towards war against China. Then to Marxist historian and writer Humphrey McQueen, and he'll be using his intelligence to talk about intelligence, artificial intelligence, is there such a thing? Can machines really think and take over the world? Then the executive director of the Gene Ethics Network, Bob Phelps, looking at all things genetic engineering particularly the push for the creation of synthetic human embryos and GM products in baby food. Then to Pacific with Nick McClellan, journalist for many decades, and we're very fortunate to have Nick here with us at 3CR. And there'll be a focus on climate change and why Pacific nations are challenging the developing countries, particularly Australia, for its inaction in stopping taking fossil fuels out of the ground. But first, let's talk to Mr Kevin Healy and find out what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jan, listener, when big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital announced excitedly, proudly, the budget surplus will be even larger, even more surplus than predicted, allowing the government to provide support for those doing it tough. I know people are doing it tough, Jim told us. And? And I know people are doing it tough. Uh, So what are you doing about it, Jim? I'm talking about it because I know people are doing it tough. Yes, yes, but what will you do about it? I told you I know people are doing it tough. Uh, So you'll use the surplus to help the people you know, and I'm pretty sure you do know, people are doing it tough. You're right, I do know, but no. If we spend the surplus, we won't have a surplus. But, but isn't the surplus money government raises to provide services which is not spending on services? <laughs> no, no, let me explain. The surplus is money raised so we can have a surplus. And so what will you do with the surplus? It will allow us to help those doing it tough. And I know people are doing it tough. What, by, by not spending it? Exactly. Uh, thanks, Jim. Pleasure. And for the third week in a row, the Socialists have picked up the Courage Under Fire Award for the, of the week. This time, the state socialists, who with firm resolve announced a tax on private schools, creating apoplexy in the luxurious grounds of the private colleges. Disaster! We'll have to raise our fees, the poor, poor parents! And thus, the firm resolve dissipated like fairy floss. Well, done, state socialists. Your Courage Under Fire Award is on its way. The federal government, with the same firm resolve, has announced it will ban gambling ads 
apoplexy this time in that industry and the filthy rich sports and media who'll lose the ads. The government now agreeing to meet those affected to discuss the policy. Somehow I see yet another Courage Under Fire award in the offing. On which, following yet another Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission exposing massive crime and corruption in the private mint casino industry, in this case the Star Private Mint in Sydney, Star Private M facing a huge tax increase, the new New South Wales Socialist Government agreed this week to delay the tax, presumably to allow poor Star Private M to make just a little more of a killing so it can afford to pay the tax even when it ever kicks in. Not that these people have more influence than you or me, listener. And in the my word it's hard to believe isn't it department, just as government assistance for child care is about to kick in, what do you know? The heavily subsidised caring child care industry jacks up its fees. My word it's hard to believe isn't it? Oh, and as the Reserve Losses Bank insists wages must fall and unemployment must rise, so we can all be better off, what a party pooper the OECD, which reported bumper profits and not slow wages growth, had spurred inflation. But we can be sure the diverse thinkers at the Reserve Losses Bank will treat that with the disdain it deserves. Warmists, as Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head calls idiot economic vandals who still believe there might just be such a thing as climate change, Warmoths up in Queensland have come up with a great idea for future generations, a coral museum, a living coral biobank they're calling it, preserving the sundry corals on the Great Barrier Reef so future generations can see what used to be in the sea. Given former chief scientist at the True Blue Aussie Institute of Marine Science, Charlie Veron, says there's not a chance in heaven of saving the Barrier Reef. Imagine the disdain with which Lord Rupert and his lackey bolt through the head must regard him. Once upon a time, dear little children, all this lived and thrived in the sea, just out there, but for the common good. The great fossil giants and the governments concerned about the common good of the great fossil giants knew there were more important things. Isn't it good that future generations can see what used to be, if the future gets that far? And imagine what sceptics would make of the warmest of the climate action tracker, who reckon if the rest of the world followed True Blue Aussie's current commitments and policies, global warming would exceed three degrees. True Blue Aussie not doing near enough? What nonsense! Don't they care about the hard-working fossil boardrooms, shareholders, profits? And it's not like we're doing nothing, goodness no, we, we've made a commitment to do something and, and it doesn't matter anyway. The Lord Rupert usual suspect columnist assures us more and more carbon dioxide is good for us, good for the planet, promotes growth, life, all the while denying it's happening in the first place. The problem was summed up by one of the caring fossils, BP for Big Polluter, which bemoaned the fact the transition from fossils was thwarted by Trublowazi's policies, urging more priority and funding for project-enabling infrastructure, its Trublowazi supremo Frederick Baldus Brass advised. We need overarching policy frameworks to de-risk investment. Uh, de-risk, Frederick. Yes, ensure we don't risk any of our money. Uh, so you're happy to invest if the government pays for it. Exactly. We, we care. 
and caring energy giant AG Health for customers picked up the perfect timing of the week award when same day it announced record profits and informed customers their bills will rise by as much as 51%. Good news guaranteeing even more record profits next year and quite possibly it will make a small donation to the Coral Museum to prove its commitment to the environment. The most disgraceful event of the week occurred in Big Polluter's home country, our mother country, when these long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden-working and iron lots from some warmest group called No More Oil invaded the hallowed turf of Lords, prompting the Lord Supremo Guy Lavender, Lavender Blue, but most definitely not Lavender Green, I suspect, who condemned the action in the strongest possible terms. Complete disregard for people who pay to attend events. And how shocking that those who don't pay, who watch or don't watch the game while enjoying the lavish corporate hospitality, charming, respectable, great, caring, business class men have to see such anti-social behaviour, many of whom would doubtless be oil and fossil executives, making the protest even more disgraceful for all the oil and fossil behemoths tell us how committed they are to addressing climate change and realise we need oil and fossils to transform from oil and fossils. Shame, no more oil, shame. And I stressed men because in a telly shot at the corporate room, the long room where the caring business class elite gather, I could not see one woman. Sometimes we have to admit we were wrong, wrong, wrong. Well, I have to admit, after Simple Simon went to the parliament in the sky, I discovered I had misjudged him all these years, that he was a giant of the labour movement, the media screamed when I didn't think he was all that tall. And I must have misheard in that documentary about the protracted Queensland electricity worker strike, CQEB, that then ACTU Supremo Simon caught on the sidelines pushing a deal to sell the workers down the drain. But, but his legacy best expressed by our old mate, Industry Profits Council Supremo Innes will cost the workers who praised simple Simon for his support for and understanding of the caring business class. Innes will cost the workers. What greater tribute could we get for a giant of the labour movement? Meanwhile, a giant of the academic movement, caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, called for the voice referendum to be cancelled because I don't want it to, you know, like, lose. Well, Pete, not sure you've thought of this, but there's one way you can make sure it doesn't lose. Despite his sincere concern, Pete called on voters in the upcoming Fadden by-election to show the government they oppose the voice. Exposed big supremo Anthony Albingusi for his refusal to provide details, details, details. Presumably the details he has attempted to get through Pete's head time and again. Showing either Pete is so dumb he doesn't get it, or dare we suggest, his plan is to obfuscate and confuse something very simple. Not that we're overlooking the dumb bit. Over in Western Troublawazi, caring Troublawazis doing their bit to help us all like carry stacks of wealth, the filthiest rich of the filthy rich Gina Wrongheart, Twitty Fell Forests, are concerned their desire to help us all might be thwarted by new Aboriginal heritage laws. Terra nullius non-people thwarting progress, particularly on the vast cattle stations they all own. 
what right the Terra Nullius non-people have to think they can have a say in what happens on these great Trublowazi's vast lands. Kerry concerned his plans for a dam on one of his Kimberley properties, note one of, could be opposed by local Terra Nullius non-people when all he wants to do is clear about 200 hectares of bush so he can draw on groundwater to provide feed for his cattle. It's his land. The laws passed just after Rio Tato the Planet did its bit to wipe out thousands of years of Terra Nullius non-people history at Duke and Gorge, but on, on hold ever since, came into effect on Saturday. Thus, panic for poor Kerry and poor Gina and poor Twitty et al over threats from people who have no respect for other people's property, for vast, vast expanses of other people's property. Former New South Wales Supremo Gladys Berridge Corruption says she has done nothing wrong, always acting in the public interest. And yes, yeah, she's, she's spot on because the public has developed an interest in her interest in the public of the Wagga Wagga electorate. Finally, insightful article this week by a bloke called Dick Hossack, real name, former advisor to former big supremo little Johnny Howhard, these days, quote, public policy advisor, attacking those attacking big four corporate PWC for pricks with confidentiality, pointing out the private sector and the public sector are different, and pricks with was just doing what the private sector does. Just like the snake asks, why did you bite me? Which answered, because I'm a snake. Great insight today, Nick, and thanks for assuring us the economy is in safe hands. Good afternoon. And you've been listening with Mr. Kevin Healy with his weekly week, that was. And if you're up at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, you can hear Kevin and friends with City Limits, which goes from 9 o'clock in the morning until 10. Leaps and Bounds Music Festival is warming up winter in Yarra. Don't miss the Archie Roach Foundation presenting Singing Our Futures, a fundraiser with Emma Donovan, Kiwak Cannell and Kian at the Corner Hotel. Explore the program by visiting the website lbmf.com.au. Leaps and Bounds, 13th to 16th of July. Yarra City Council is a 3CR supporter. See what I want to think and now's the time to grab it. Get to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, 
hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. One of those featured in the latest film by one of Australia's most respected political documentary makers, David Bradbury, was Dr Richard Tanter, described in the film as a military analyst. But as we'll hear, Richard is much, much more. And when I spoke to him recently and began by pointing out that indeed there was much more to his life and asked him if there was one starting point or was it indeed in his DNA? <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that. Certainly, you know, there are issues going back to quite seriously to childhood. My mother, for example, uh, I grew up in a rather Tory family, but my mother took me to participate in the crowd scenes of the making of On the Beach in Melbourne. Uh, about in, She had a long concern about nuclear war, coming from her own experience in the Second World War. But I think for me, it was, you know, being of a certain age, it was the Vietnam War and understanding at last what that, what that meant. And I was, didn't have the courage to be a draft resistor I, um, at the time of conscription, but I was a conscientious objector. And then it was really, for me, the turning point was the Indonesian invasion of Timor. Uh, I'd been working on Indonesia for a number of years as a, as a university student, but then as an activist. And my horror at the reports that were coming back in 1974-75 from Timor, and in particular Australian collusion, first under Gough Whitlam and then under the Fraser government with the Indonesian government and the United States uh, over the invasion of East Timor. And I think it was that point I was drawn into you know, if you like, activist research uh, about East Timor, uh, the first things I ever published on military matters, about which I knew nothing beforehand, was when I was in New York in 1976, uh, working for Jezero Mosota and Maria Alcatiri at the Fretland office at the United Nations. And part of my job was to try and convince uh, delegates to the United Nations that what the Australians and the Americans and the Indonesians were saying about the invasion of Timor, that Fretland and resistance was completely overwhelmed by the Indonesians, that that simply was not true. And so it was still important for uh, countries like Tanzania, China, many other countries, to press the Indonesians uh, to withdraw. So that was my introduction to thinking a little bit about what research might mean for activism. Why was it that you were thinking of Indonesia at that time? It was very clear to me, I guess this is partly in the context of the Vietnam War and the end of Vietnam, but uh, it was also very clear to me as a, you know, a, a high school student concerned about Vietnam that we didn't know much about Asia. And so I was very lucky. I had a high school teacher who uh, encouraged me to think about reading about India and China. I was very lucky in my first years at university to study Chinese and Japanese history and be just not entranced about it, but just uh, this is the realisation of the deep civilizational 
issues, and it became I um, first started studying Indonesian at university and realised this is an incredibly important country about which we knew very little, and um, so Indonesia was clearly important. And I guess with a secondary element there, which persists to today, that realising that I had lived through as a sort of 15, 16-year-old the the Indonesian military's genocide uh, against uh, Communist Party members, suspected communists, um, Chinese citizens or Chinese descent citizens in Indonesia in 1965-66 and that Australia had turned a blind eye to that extraordinary historical event. So, uh, you know, I was sensitised to Indonesia. I liked the country. I spoke the language badly. And so when Timor came along, it was pretty important for people who knew about Indonesia to address the issue. And, of course, that interest in and support for East Timor lasted many, many years and is still there. Yeah, it is. And um, uh, I'm still concerned about it, but Timor is an extraordinary victory. You know, those years when I was working for Holta uh, with uh, other Australians in at the United Nations and Congress, often going to meetings, you know, with very small numbers of people. When I was back in Melbourne in the early, in the late 70s, chairing the Australian East Timor Association, you know, we would often be downhearted, particularly after the, the worst years in Timor, 78, 79, of accompanying Horta or Alcatiri to Canberra or to meetings with politicians where it's four or five people there. And yet, Timor survived, the armed resistance survived, the cultural resistance, and eventually Timor won against Indonesia. So uh, there, it was a long, long struggle for the Timorese people, but they got there, and now it's up to them. But it was Japan, the place where you lived and worked for quite a while. Why was that? Well, I lived in uh, New York, uh, or the United States, on and off for about four or five years and that was partly intellectual interest but partly a feeling that you have to understand the heart of empire if you want to understand Australia as sitting on the edge of that and in the case of Japan thinking in the 1980s it was clear that something new was happening uh, in East Asia and in particular then it was for me the rise of Japan Uh, an extraordinarily interesting country about which I knew very little, and equally South Korea. And so I ended up working in Japan at an unusual, uh, very interesting university for over a decade, mainly in the 90s. And it was essentially trying to understand that new part, that new part of the external environment of Australia. Equally, I kind of wish in reflection that I'd thought been clever, more clever, and had the same time in China, but that's the way you know life goes. And so that deep connection with Japan, my kids grew up there, is really, really important there. And understanding what it is to be an outsider in a country, I think, is really important. You know, I speak Indonesian badly, I speak Japanese fast and badly, but you get along. And you have some sense of what it must be for other people to be outsiders, for example, in this country. And what was it like for you teaching in Japan as an outsider? 
Oh, it was interesting. I went there for, I guess, the family stories. We went there for four years, stayed for 13, should have left after 10. But it was extremely interesting. And I taught at a, a very unusual university in Japan. People in Kyoto, where my university was, would ask you in Japanese, you know, um, where are you working? And I'd say at Kyoto Seika University in Japanese. And they would reply in Japanese, with as much insinuation as you can get into the word in English, oh, that must be interesting, ranging from, oh, that's really interesting, and my daughter would like to go there, through to, are those maniacs still live with us? Uh, it was a liberal university in a country where liberalism's not a virtue. So I learnt a lot, and I'm very grateful for that time. Those years would have had a big impact on your children? Uh, yeah, both my children are, are very connected with Japan. Uh, uh, one's going shortly. <clears throat> Again, one spends time there um, working. So, yeah, it, it had a huge impact. So we were just incredibly fortunate. What about the issue of security and the role played by Des Ball? Well, my interest in Pine Gap comes from uh, work that activist work and and thinking about strategic issues from a peace point of view, I guess after my main involvement in Timor, which finished for around the 1982 period, and my concern then academically was about militarisation in Asia, and of course that led to great concern about the American nuclear presence and the confrontation with the Soviet Union in the Pacific in nuclear terms. And that really opened my eyes to the things I didn't know about Australia and reading this joker, Des Ball, who'd written this extraordinary book, uh, A Suitable Piece of Real Estate. And Des had been very helpful to me in Timor days when I was working on Australian military aid to Indonesia. And then we started to talk about the bases. And I became involved, uh, along with Joe Camilleri and many other people, in what became People for Nuclear Disarmament uh, in Melbourne and chaired that for a number of years. And at the same time, was as a kind of person who was teaching sociology, I was a sort of, in terms of my intellectual interest, it was not about international relations and strategic studies, but realising that through Pine Gap and Northwest Cape and Naranga in South Australia, Australia played an extraordinary important role in the American nuclear command and control system. And it was important for the peace movement to find out about that. And so the common element with my work on Timor was the feeling that it, that it is really important for social movements to be, or to have access to reliable, authoritative information about international relations, strategic issues, military matters, with the key emphasis on authoritative and accessible. Most academic writing is, of course, not accessible, either because it's buried in journals or because people write in what well, is quite frankly often barbarously alienating language. And Des wrote an extraordinary pamphlet for the Victorian Association of Peace Studies uh, on American bases in Australia, about 5,000 words, and that was our first publication. And we sold thousands and thousands of that, copies of that. And it really demonstrated to me the importance of not just the work that he was doing, but his willingness to write it in accessible English so that 
the rest of us can understand. And that's a lesson I've taken forward uh, since then. And we worked on Pine Gap. Well, he, he was very supportive of the peace movement work and I slowly learned about it. But from the 1990s onwards, we worked together very pretty intensively on Pine Gap until his death. Another extremely important person was New Zealander Owen Wilkes. Owen was an extraordinary man who died too young. And there's a very fine book uh, which has been published uh, by his New Zealand colleagues recently, which uh, I I urge people to to look at. Owen was a scientist and an archaeologist who, when he was working in New Zealand's Antarctic bases on scientific issues, became aware of an American nuclear presence there, um, which was intriguing. And he then became a self-taught specialist in the same arcane area of strategic issues that Des Ball had been fascinated in by the nuclear command and control system and particularly the role of the big signals intelligence spy bases. And he became one of the world's experts. Des always said that uh, it was Owen who educated him about signals intelligence. It's not I think, quite entirely true. But Owen was a model peace researcher. He was absolutely committed to the truth, uh, sometimes in ways that peace movement colleagues didn't agree with and didn't like when he said, well, I think the facts have changed and so my opinions changed. But he was a very dedicated campaigner, particularly on nuclear-free and independent Pacific issues, which, of course is still highly relevant today. Yes, as you say, it would be even more important now and that would be taking up a fair bit of your time as well? Well, the fact that the United States and Papua New Guinea have just uh, uh, signed a security agreement which gives the United States access to particular military facilities in Papua New Guinea, including the airport and the port of Port Moresby and other ports, is an indication that these things are never static and things are actually moving, I think, in a negative direction very considerably at the moment. So it's really important for people to be aware of these issues, for people who work in universities or who have the time to devote to it, to to simply understand it and explain reliably, with the emphasis on reliability, what's happening. And how much of your time is now connected to universities? Well, I'm no longer teaching at Melbourne University. My last subject on nuclear weapons and disarmament and before that Australian foreign policy finished after a decade uh, last year. The university or the faculty has moved on to other matters. But I um, am still working on these issues to the extent that I can as an activist and concentrating on, if you like, the research which I think the peace movement needs on Pine Gap and on other signals intelligence matters, including French signals intelligence issues in the Pacific, nuclear weapons, particularly uh, as someone who was a president of ICANN or the board, Australian board of ICANN, having a strong issue in uh, supporting the success of the nuclear ban treaty, but also in the really fairly ominous developments in the way that the Albanese government has followed on without a break from the Turnbull and Morrison and 
Gillard governments on supporting what's called the American Australia Force Posture uh, Initiative in Australia, which beyond Pine Gap draws Australia into American war fighting plans with China. And we simply need to be aware of this and to think very carefully about whether it's in our interests. Can I take you back to your work at the Nautilus Institute? How that came about and what it achieved? Nautilus is, uh, has a strong Australian connection. It was founded by uh, Peter Haynes, who comes from Melbourne, uh, Lou Bozarski, uh, an American, this distinguished American economist, uh, and Walden Bellow. And they wrote an extraordinary book uh, in the mid-1980s, essentially for the nuclear-free and independent Pacific campaign uh, called American Lake, which is still the most extraordinary introduction to uh, really what they called nuclear peril in the Pacific. And I was just rereading it for some current work, and it's still extraordinary. Nautilus uh, began as, if you like, the research arm of the nuclear free and independent Pacific movement, then became a small independent research and policy organization based in the United States, and then has become for a small organisation, which it always has been, remarkably influential with its emphasis on security and sustainability uh, and with nuclear weapons and nuclear power as one nexus for that and developing a capacity to work particularly on Northeast Asia, on the Korean issues, South Korea, North Korea, uh, Japan, Far East and Russia. Then it opened an office uh, in Melbourne uh, and which that I worked with, and that allowed us, if you like, to make a small, metaphorically elbow our way into some of the discussions in Canberra. And while that office is closed, our work on peace issues, on strategic issues, our websites on uh, Australian defence facilities, Australian bases overseas, particularly during the Afghanistan and Syria-Iraq wars, has been very important. The work Nick McClellan did on Australian basing in the Pacific, these are really things that uh, Nautilus has good reason to be proud of. Do you have concerns that the issues we've been covering just now are decreasingly being taught and discussed at universities in Australia? I think universities in Australia are frankly in terrible trouble in all sorts of ways and I'm hardly alone in thinking that. I think that universities uh, remain an extraordinary public resource. But as Raywin Connell wrote in her fabulous book, uh, The Good University, there are deep structural problems. And that's being manifest on both the teaching side and on the research side. So, for example, in 1968, when 100 years ago, it feels like now, I went to Melbourne University and enrolled in Indonesian one, there were perhaps 120 people in that class. When I last looked at Melbourne University, which is now about six or seven years ago, at Indonesian one, there were about 25. Indonesian language class capacity, Indonesian language teaching at many universities in Australia has simply collapsed. And this is after the so-called Asian century emphasis. Hindi, a language incredibly important for Australia, has gone in Victoria. Uh, we don't think about Thai and Tagalog. So how the hell do we actually know what's going on? And that's paralleled by a lack of teaching about 
the basics of, say, Indonesian or Philippines or Southeast Asian history, if you don't know the story of the people next door, you're going to make mistakes one way or another. In terms of research, there are some very, very good researchers in Australia of different political and theoretical orientations, and many of them do very important work which feeds into a good understanding of nuclear issues, for example. But I'd have to say there's been a kind of shrinking of focus, and there's also been an increase of research and policy analysis capacity at universities, at universities which are often not especially critically oriented. By critical, I don't mean just nasty, snark, snark, but I mean casting a critical eye on the powers that be. And a good example of that is the American-funded US Study Center at the University of Sydney. Um, we worry about Chinese soft power influence, and we should, uh, if it's not acknowledged, but we don't seem to care too much about American soft power influence. Writing has always been an important part of your life. Do you have more time now for writing? <laughs> yes, more time for <coughs> writing, more time for family, more time for fixing up a falling down house that uh, I have neglected far too long. And so the writing uh, is taking up uh, uh, more time. And that's uh, I'm incredibly lucky that I have the ability to do that and the support of a family that makes that possible. And more particularly, I'm as I'm finishing a big piece of work at the moment, the benefits of working not just with peace networks over a long period of time, but with a remarkable group of researchers through Nautilus and other connections. And they're, just to say to people, there are researchers who are doing really important work around the world and I'm being a beneficiary of support from them. Could you look at this idea? Could you tell me if I'm in the wrong, you know, the wrong direction here? What do you think about that? And people who are kind enough to read and even more kind enough to comment honestly on what you're drafting because you only learn through your mistakes. And um, so I'm always very grateful to people who take the time to read what I write carefully. Finally, Richard, where do you see the Australian peace movement at this time? Pretty optimistic. We've been through a long time since the end of the Cold War, and that's you know, more than a quarter of a century now, more, a decade more than that, when people generally thought that the end of the Cold War was the time when we had to stop worrying about things. We went through the Iraq War and the great expansion of peace movement energy there, but it didn't have a strong organisational base and it faded. I'm very encouraged uh, by the growth of organisations like IPAN. I'm encouraged by the long, obviously, the long-term success of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and it's the Australian role, which I think we can be very proud of, in uh, getting that work, that all that work to the point of a treaty. I think we're in trouble with the Albanese government on that treaty at the moment, but leaving that aside, I think there is now, for the first time in 30 years, the basis for a national peace movement. The anti-AUKUS coalition is really doing quite well. These things are always a mixed bag in any collective enterprise, but 
I'm really encouraged by the emergence of a new generation of peace researchers. When I look at the work, for example, of people like Michelle Fay, uh, who publishes uh, Undue Influence, work on uh, the arms trade. When I look at the work of uh, the lawyer Kelly Tranter, uh, using freedom of information materials creatively. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Richard. And of course, Richard Tranter is an academic, a researcher, a peace activist and a writer. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Uh, We are such a huge representation in prison all over Australia. Statistically, it has to stop and it's not going to stop while you're building more beds in a prison. It's a Band-Aid. What about beds outside? Tune in to 3CR during NAIDOC week at 11am each day from Monday the 3rd to Friday the 7th of July. We'll take you inside six Victorian prisons. Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, Barwon Prison, Fulham Correctional Centre, Loddon Prison, Marguerite Correctional Centre and Port Phillip Prison. To hear stories, songs, opinions and poems from the men and women inside while connecting with culture and community. The shows will be live on 3CR 855 on your AM dial, 3CR Digital and streaming via our website or the Community Radio Plus app. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyondthebars. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 A 3CR supporter. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for Listeners. I'm Kelly. I'm Katie. We are starting a new program called Hong Kongology here on 3CR. We are bringing you alternative perspectives on current affairs, cultural events, and community news about Hong Kong within and beyond the city. Hong Kongology is on air every Thursday, 6 to 7 p.m., starting on the 6th of July. Our shows will be in English, Cantonese, or a mix of both languages. Follow us on Instagram at Hong Kongology 3CR for more details. See you there. Hi, I'm Sina. Today we're going to tackle artificial intelligence to ask some questions and seek some answers. What is intelligence? What is artificial about intelligence? Can machines think? Separate words, but they put them together. And to do that, I spoke with Marxist historian. And author, Humphrey McQueen. 
there's so much talk around AI, artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence, all of these things. We're told that it's going to bring about the end of civilization. The world's never going to be the same again. All of those things are around. Some of it gets pretty close to being of great concern. I'll talk about some of those aspects in a couple of minutes. But I think where we need to go back, really, mainly what I'm going to say in talking about this at the moment is need to put some substance into how we think about it. And that means, I think, doing a bit of reading or rereading things that many of us might have read long ago. The question of what is human intelligence? One of the problems with thinking about human intelligence is that it's been tied to the notion of IQ tests. So that what should be a qualitative concern had been reduced to a quantitative one. You give people a series of tests and you say, this person, and worse still, this group of people are innately more or less intelligent than other people. So that you know, historically, uh, well, not only historically, but still going on in the 70s and 80s with you know, tests over you know, arguments in the United States about this, that uh, the black population in the United States was collectively less intelligent. There was a kind of 10% of them who were intelligent, but by and large, they fell below the general level of the European community. It also had the argument that had gone on before this that all the men were more intelligent than all the women, for example, all of those kinds of views. We've got to break out of that. And one way I'm sure many of the listeners would have done so over the years have read Stephen Jay Gould's marvellous book, The Mismeasure of Man, which is an attack on this whole IQ well, the class, race, uh, gender biases within it, but also an attack on the whole notion that that's how we look at what human intelligence should be. My first suggestion then is that it's worth bearing in mind, pointing out to people, going back and doing it yourself, or indeed perhaps for the first time, chase up Stephen Jay Gould's marvellous book. That's the first thing I think we've got to get rid of. The second thing, I want to have a look at the word artificial. Where I think we've got to think, and this is a bit harder to think, there's a sense in which all human intelligence is artificial. We're not born with it. I mean, I wasn't born able to speak the English language. The only reason I can speak the English language is that I grew up in a household of English speakers. No matter what my ethnic background had been, if I'd been kidnapped at birth and sent off to Japan or somewhere, I would have grown up speaking Japanese. All of these things that we're able to do, certainly they build on an innate capacity. You're born with a capacity to communicate. Well, we're not talking about the sort of unfortunate tiny, tiny percentage of people who through serious brain damage don't have that. But we're talking about 99.99% of the population. We're born with a capacity to do various things. Whether we get to do them or not, and how we get to do them are things that we learn through social interaction, language being the most obvious. I mean, if, as we know, there's terrible stories about babies who grow up infants. They never hear language. They don't see human eye contact. All of those things that are absolutely essential, they don't get them. And it's very hard, if ever, after about the age of five, for them to acquire those things. Intelligence for human beings is also artificial. It's something that we accumulate and pass on. Now, what 
we're talking about in machine artificial intelligence, the IQ stuff, is that all the things that we as human beings have learned, accumulated, written down, said to each other, all of those things, they have now been scanned, to put it like that, into vast computers, and you press buttons and answers supposedly come out to them. If it hadn't been for the artificial learning, the learning process of human beings, none of that would be there. If it was just the machine by itself, it wouldn't be doing anything because it wouldn't have had any input from all the things over the, how many, you know, 150,000 years or something, perhaps a bit more, perhaps a bit less, that we as a human species have had to learn ourselves and to teach each other. Karl Marx gives a wonderful example of of the binomial theorem. He says, the greatest minds in Europe spent years working out the binomial theorem. But by his time, you could teach it to a 14-year-old in two hours. We'd learned how to do those things. We hadn't become that much more intelligent. It wasn't that the, the general population, everybody was as bright as Isaac Newton. It wasn't that. It was that socially, we had absorbed a level of mathematical understanding that became possible to pass on these skills that someone else had developed and passed on to us. When we think about what is artificial, we're not talking about something that is fake or phony. That's all part of human artificial intelligence, our ability to do fakes and phonies and frauds and all those things. That's all part of it. But when we say artificial, we're thinking about the creativity of human beings and the learning processes that have gone into it. As I said a little while ago, that is the basis for everything that goes into, into a computer and into a machine. There isn't that, there's, that they are making this stuff up for the first time. They get it, they sort it out, they can do things with it, and we'll come to some of those things in a moment. Now, this can lead on to something that I think probably all the listeners will have heard of, which is called the Turing test. Alan Turing was one of the great minds of the 1940s and 1950s. There's a couple of great biographies of him and books. And um, he was organised the code breakers that helped the Allies to defeat the fascists. He had a terrible fate that he was gay and he got arrested and you know terrible things happened to him. And it's possible that he actually committed suicide. It's not absolutely certain, but you know. That part of the story. And in 1950, he published an article in the leading British philosophical journal about, which has been boiled down to now, something called the Turing Test. My suggestion is to everybody, if you haven't read it, chase it up. I mean, I've sent, I've sent you down a copy and pass it on from there. I don't know what the legality of doing that is, this day of artificial intelligence. But the article's there. It is a wonderful read. As you would imagine from someone like him, it's very clear. It's very funny in many parts. It's not that sort of, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. That's, you know, too mathematical. It's not like that at all. But why, one of the reasons for reading it, I think, is that what is supposedly the Turing test? Now, the popular version of it, like many popular versions of things, is simply wrong. The popular version says... You put a machine in one room and you put a man in another room and an interlocutor so that you can't actually hear it's a machine voice. They pass things back and forth between them 
and when the human being cannot tell that it's a machine and not another human being, then the machine has to be classified as falling into the realm of being equivalent to human intelligence. That's the simple and wrong version. First of all, Turing does not have a man in one room. The machine, he has a man and a woman in one room and the machine in the other. That's the simple test. But it's not the test that he really puts forward. He then goes on to put a more complicated test, a more inventive, well, I don't know, complicated, complicated for the machine. It's a totally different kind of test, one that comes closer to being human intelligence. And as I say, reading the essay, which is in this 1950 issue of the journal Mind, M-I-N-D, uh, the Philosophical Journal, but other things, the computer, a very simple computer he had then, of course, in 1950, I mean, he didn't think that he'd have a computer that would be able to do anything for another 50 years. So he's really being the ventriloquist for the computer as well as for the human being. There's a wonderfully engaging discussion about sonnets, about Shakespeare's homoerotic sonnet 18 that goes back and forth between the machine and Alan Turing. And that's just an indication of what a wonderful essay it is to read. But it's worth reading to break out of the kind of misinformation, waves of it, that pour over us about everything. If you want to think of something as sort of you know, something going to be fake, as I've just outlined, popular version of the Turing test is already as fake as anything that artificial intelligence could come up with. What influence did that essay have at the time? Well, like so many things, at the time, um, it was broadly accepted and boiled down as it's come on. You know, the, you know, I mean, See, when I first heard of the Turing test before I read the essay, I just assumed that it was you put a machine in one room and a human being in another, and if you can't tell the difference, then the machine's intelligent. I mean, that's what it got boiled down to. And that happened pretty smart. And I, I've read a few of the essays in the philosophical journals that follow on. Most of them don't get beyond that in, in any real sense. In fact, the professor of artificial intelligence today at the University of New South Wales, he's done three books about artificial intelligence. None of them are worth reading. They're just a load of old cods bottles, is all I can say about them. A machine would be embarrassed to have pretended to have written them. I reckon, in reading them, that either he's never read the Turing essay, or he read it so long ago that he's forgotten everything about it. But how you get to be a professor of artificial intelligence at a leading university, I do not know, if you can't get that right. But his inability, the fact that he's not called out professionally about it, is in a sense an answer to your question as to what happened to the initial impact of it 73 years later. It's just boiled down by some of these people. However, all is not lost. There's a wonderful woman in the United States called Alison Gopnik, and she follows up the other version, part two of the Turing test. You should follow her up, so I won't go into it in any detail now, except to say the nature of the test that she has following on from part two is to get four-year-olds to conduct experiments. And at the same time, she's got computers trying to do the same experiments. You'll be pleased to know that kids beat the computers every time. 
there's just ability to think and to manipulate new things that the kids can do. They explore, they go to make mistakes in the beginning, but they keep going at it. And they are they're beating the computers hands down all the time. Now, I mean, she's a big leading academic over there, published you know half a dozen books and things. You can chase her up online as well. So that's some of the basic stuff, I think, that we need to, to be able to, to think about in relation to artificial intelligence. Now, I want to move across to a couple of areas that relate directly to what might, how, what effect artificial intelligence, AI, all this stuff they talk about, will have on ordinary lives of working people. The European Union is saying, oh, we're going to put controls over. We're not going to let them have fake pictures of fakes and phonies like Trump and people. But how you can get a fake of a fake of a fake, I do not know. But that's what they're going to try and stop. All the political stuff is going to be preserved in its authenticity, God save us. Anyway, what they're not going to do, you can bet Brussels to a Brussels sprout. They are not going to control the way in which AI is already being used and has been used for quite a long time now to control the application of human labor, the intensification of human labor in the work process. And the best example we can give of this is what goes on in an Amazon hellscape, otherwise known as a fulfillment center. They may be fulfilling the orders, but they're not fulfilling the workers. What goes on in there, and it's been going on for almost 20 years, the workers are fitted with a kind of, well, band around, they put these bands around their wrists and they measure how fast they're working. And then when they get the results back in the computer, it sends messages back down to nudge them into working better and faster. And in the process, they have, over a few years, pushed the pick rate. Now, the pick rate is how often can you get a parcel from here to there? From 100 to 300. That's what they've been able to do. But in addition to that, since then, they've introduced a whole series of recording points out of sensors all around the fulfillment centers. So every movement within them is taken in and recorded. And then that process to see how you can speed things up. This kind of thing started with Josiah Wedgwood in his ceramic uh, works in 1770. And we've got you know, Frederick Winslow Taylor, you know, Taylorism around 1900. There they were with their Bundy clocks and their stopwatches and all these things. What you've got now is the acceleration of that with the ability to process all the information you've got in almost real time so you can drive up the intensification of the application of human labor. And that's one of the things that is certainly happening. And that's what they're going to use it for. The workers, the unions, organized working people, people thinking about these things have to think about AI in these terms, not get swept away with, oh, the political self, there's going to be you know, fake pictures of this person or that person saying this or that thing that they never said. Yes, that will happen. But underneath it all, there is this drive, which we've got to be concerned about, to intensify the rate of surplus value. Because in the Amazon world, there is this expression, the rate is God, the rate. They're always after pushing up the rate. We know what that is. Too often, 
almost invariably the ACTU and the ALP and the unions here go on about wages. Well, indeed. But what's also, and I think more important, is the control of labour time. People talk about wage theft, but wage theft goes hand in hand with time theft. You can't separate the two. And the time theft is not just that they get you to work off the clock. What they do is while you are on the clock and they are paying you, they intensify the rate. So it goes from, as I say, from 100 to 300. That's what they're after. And that's what they're going to be able to use. All this capacity that these supercomputers, perhaps eventually a quantum computer, if they ever can get one to work, they will use it to control and to direct this. But it's already happening. It's not something that's going to happen in six months' time or 12 years. And when these people talk about Microsoft and these people talk about, oh, we've got to stop for six months to see what we're doing, they're not concerned about what I've just been talking about. They're concerned about other things. And one of the things they're concerned about, this is another part of the capitalist system that's operating, is that part of what they would use it for and uh, is the competition between these big high-tech firms. And one powerful example is the competition for advertising revenue between the Google search engine and the Microsoft search engine. Many people obviously don't know that Microsoft has a search engine. It's called Bing, and it gets about 8% of all the inquiries, so it only gets about 8% of the advertising revenue. Google gets 80%. And what Microsoft are after, needless to say, is to make their search engine much more effective, go faster and get more things into it, so they'll get more people signing up to their Bing search engine and away from the Google search engine. So there's a real battle going on between these giant corporations. I mean, I can't believe that Microsoft could ever win Gates is really nothing but a celebrity. The stories that he invented COVID, he's the source of that. Well, all I can say, on the basis of his track record over 40 years, the only way that he could spread COVID around is if he'd bought the virus in from somebody else because he'd never been able to invent anything that actually worked. He's nothing but a celebrity. What he's done is to use the monopoly power that he's had right from the start to buy in things, which is what he's just done with the IQ thing. And they just spent $13 billion buying in um, the beginning of Chatbox, for example. I mean, that's what he'll do. But that's where the other half of the battle is. And if I could just wind up with one other reading suggestion that raises a big question that we started out with right at the beginning. Many of the listeners will know the title of Philip K. Dick's wonderful book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And the reason many of us know of it is, of course, because it became known to us through the Ridley Scott film that was to be based on this. And, I mean, it's, it is a great film. I mean, it's, visually, it is fabulous to watch. However, it bears no relationship whatsoever, I think, to what is going on in this wonderful book, that it's in the book. The whole question of dreaming of sheep is of a completely different order. As far as the film's concerned, I think that it's a wonderful visual, but it's not much more than truly being a kind of cops and robbers story. We're trying to track down these people who've come from, you know, back from 
you know, out of space, the androids have come in there. That's really what goes on to the time in Blade Runner. But in the book, there's much bigger, important social, political, cultural questions. I just encourage everyone to read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And in doing so, and we might end with this now, going back to this, is can robots dream? This takes it back to the question about artificial intelligence. What is artificial? What can they do? I mean, I can't answer that question. Will I ever get around to reading? I mean, you know, one would have to be pretty dumb in the sense to say, oh, well, no one will ever be able to do that. I mean, that's what people said 400 years ago, that no human being will ever be able to fly. Well, you know, we can't fly by ourselves, but heavier than air flying machines are, you know, the order of the day. So, yes, we are inventive, as I said. We make up these things. Who knows? We may actually be able to make machines that will eventually be able to dream. I don't know. But in the meantime, I'll leave you with this other thought as to why machines aren't us and why we aren't exactly part of that machine world. We're told over and over again that, oh, you're hardwired for something. I have no wires inside my head. What am I hardwired for? Where did this metaphor come from? Well, it started with back in the days of the telegraph around 1800. Then it went on to the telephone. Then it went into the very early computers. But when was there a wire inside a computer? They've all gone. I mean, they don't put wires in computers anymore. That's not how you do it. But this metaphor, it's a bit like the IQ story again. The hardwired story is, oh, we're hardwired for capitalism. We're hardwired for greed. We're hardwired for war. All of these things. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't change the world. Everything's going to be the way that it is because we are hardwired, they tell us. Well, that's not how brains work. Brains are soppy, soft things. The other thing about us and the brain and learning things is that there's a wonderful man who's you know, been dead a few years now, Hubert Dreyfus. He wrote a book called On the Internet. It's worth thinking about the example that he gave in all kinds of contexts. He says, if I tell you that George Washington has, has just gone to New York, I don't have to tell you that George Washington's left leg is in New York or that his right leg is in New York. You know this because you are a sentient being with legs operating in a physical world. The computer knows none of that. With the computer, if you say George Washington is in New York, you have to tell it that his left leg is in New York, that his big toe on his left leg is in New York, and that the toenail on the big toe is in New York as well. That's what they're doing. They've got to put all this stuff into it. The difference then between us is that we learn these things by being sentient creatures in the world. What Marx refers to as sensuous human activity. We just absorb that. I talked before at the beginning of learning language. Well, most of us acquire the language just by hearing people around it. Not very likely that if you put a computer unprogrammed for any of this into a room with a lot of human beings for 18 months, that would come out the other end being able to talk either English or Japanese. So we do have lots of differences 
and I think lots of advantages, but we have to see where the threats are coming from. And for the working class, I think the prime threat from all of this is about the intensification of human labour times. And we have to follow that through and watch them and stand up to them and fight back at every possible opportunity. And that's the message from Humphrey McQueen, Marxist historian and author. Wondering how to pay your donation to 3CR Radiothon? It's easy. You can pay online at 3cr.org.au or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash or card. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical. VCR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes Fafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white Fafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Need an extra layer for the cooler months? We've got great new long sleeve tops that proudly say Workers Radio. Available now online or at the station. Perfect for layering when you're out on the street. They'll have you picket line ready for winter. At $40, you'll get a great quality shirt ethically and locally manufactured by Quali Tops in Reservoir. Order now and we'll post one out for $8.50. Or you can pick it up from the station. Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Next to genetic engineering and 
Bob Phelps is on the line. Bob is the executive director of the Gene Ethics Network. Begin, Bob, with creation of synthetic human embryos. Who wants them and why? Well, researchers want them because they say that they're going to be able to understand uh, human embryonic development better by creating the human embryos synthetically and then exploring how they actually function. But why do they have to know that? Towards better human health, of course. Uh, this is the cover for um, a whole lot of research that's going on and all sorts of things. It's a bit like in the other area. A lot of um, quite irrelevant research is being done which claims to it's going to help uh, global climate change and all sorts of money are available for doing that. And uh, it's the same with human health. If you can put the label, uh, it may help to fix human health, then um, they get bags of money and a lot of kudos out of it if they happen to have a success. Or it was announced at a conference uh, the week before last that uh, creating synthetic human embryos, that's sort of starting from scratch using stem cells, which can be made into any kind of biological material, uh, can be used to make human embryos. And they also, of course, want to extend the time over which they can use them. At the moment, there's uh, an informal international consensus that you shouldn't allow embryos to develop, which are being used for research, to develop beyond 14 days or the equivalent of 14 days for a natural embryo. But some researchers now want to extend that to 21 days of course, many of these synthetic embryo experiments will be unregulated as well. So it's the wild west out there in uh, genetic engineering land, particularly the genetic engineering of human beings. How much opposition is there to this? Stop Designer Babies, which is an international coalition that we formed earlier this year, is uh, doing its bit. And, um, of course, there's evidence emerging as well from other laboratories um, particularly uh, research announced a couple of weeks ago by researchers at the University of Oxford have found that uh, gene editing, which seeks to repair uh, mutations in human beings in developing embryos and so on, that uh, CRISPR gene editing uh, may be quite efficient at targeting specific DNA and uh, apparently fixing it up, repairing uh, the DNA breaks, etc., but unfortunately, as we already knew, uh, there's a lot of collateral damage and it may result in more mutations and uh, leaving the existing ones uncorrected as well. Again, it's some um, very vanguard work that's being done. It's being done on human beings. And uh, the point of view of Stop Designer Babies is that this has also got eugenic implications. We know there's um, the re-emergence of a lot of right-wing thinking about controlling women's fertility and eliminating people uh, because they're um, defectives or unsuitable to uh, procreate. In some quarters, that's getting quite a bit of traction. And it seems to us that uh, things like this research are actually delivering the tools by which such changes could be commercialised by the IVF industry, which has got a pretty checkered track record as well of uh, not being ethical or moral in its decisions about uh, how it will treat its uh, customers. And where does food come into gene editing? Uh, extensively, and there's a lot of discussion at the moment because Food Stands Australia New Zealand 
has a review of um, plants and animals which are uh, created using the so-called new breeding techniques. And this is uh, a kind of um, weasel words, new breeding techniques is weasel words for genome editing as well. That's an ongoing process. We had expected to hear last year from the SANS, but I imagine there's some dissent behind the scenes because we still haven't heard how they're going to advance their view that uh, these methods of developing plants and animals using genetic engineering uh, should be deregulated and not notified to shoppers either. Uh, the labelling of these things uh, would probably not be required. This is a process that began in 2012, actually, with a an expert committee, so-called, of people who, uh, of course, are very much behind the technology and behind the technology being applied to the production of food and to the uh, human food supply generally. In fact, the most recent, of course, is um, synthetic meat, which is... Uh, being researched and uh, some companies want to put that on the market as well. Which countries are involved in this? In laboratories around the world really if, if people are keen even in Australia we've got a company called Val and another one Magic Valley that are talking about uh, cultured meat products beginning with the cells from the animals or a fertilized egg of the animal or the plant in this case the, uh, the animal whether it's um, a chicken pig, cattle or a sheep, they take the, the cells, they get them to um, regenerate themselves and then put them into bioreactors, which are basically factory tanks where they will produce meat-like products. If you look in the supermarkets these days, of course, there are a whole raft of um, different, both plant-based and animal-based products coming along that purport to replace meat. Some of them are quite suspect. Uh, Impossible Foods, which is imported from the USA as hamburger, for instance, has a genetically manipulated product in it that makes the hamburger appear to bleed. And uh, we resisted the introduction of that. But again, Food Stamps Australia New Zealand gave it a tick. That's now in the human food supply as well, essentially untried. It is a small percentage of the product, but uh, that doesn't mean that it can't be uh, harmful. Some people might say, well, this is a good thing. It saves breeding so many farm animals. What do you say about that? Well, I think you have to do the arithmetic. One of the reasons, of course, for not breeding farm animals, of course, is cruelty, yes. Uh, impacts on global climate change because uh, animal agriculture is a huge contributor to, to um, greenhouse gases. They're saying that uh, putting these things into factories and producing them using the, the byproducts of animals will uh, actually uh, reduce things like greenhouse gases. But uh, when you look at that, it doesn't really stack up. I mean, you have to feed the organisms in the factory vats. You feed them something similar to what animals would be fed out in the field. Their impacts on the environment are likely to be rather similar. But uh, the research is still needed to establish just exactly what the health impacts will be of uh, these synthetic foods, because they are ultra-processed, of course. And ultra-processed foods, generally speaking, are not good for human health. And, of course, their environmental balance or their contribution to the impacts on the environment have not been properly evaluated yet either. So 
it's wait and see. But meantime, it looks like Food Stamps Australia New Zealand is open to all comers and uh, these applications are very likely to get a tick. We'll know in August, I expect, when Fasans puts uh, the details out for public comment and so-called consultation, that they will have made up their mind uh, before they do that about whether or not they're going to accept these products. Fasans is um, a group of technocrats who... uh, have their own style of thinking about the food supply and uh, having an argument with them is usually a lost cause. What's the argument against GM ingredients in infant formula? Well, again, uh, the data is provided by the companies, the uh, formula companies. There are now a large number of byproducts of genetically engineered microorganisms produced rather similarly to the way that these uh, Animal products would be produced in large large vats where you keep genetically manipulated uh, organisms that will have been engineered to produce particular proteins and enzymes. Food Standards is very much in the mood to approve these for inclusion in the uh, infant formulas. If you look on an infant formula label, you'll see that there are dozens of different products none saying what what their origin is. Food Standards doesn't do any experiments or testing itself, so uh, we have no independent, reliable check on uh, what the companies themselves are doing. As a result, there's no interactional assessment. If you've got dozens of different components that claim to be equivalent to the natural components in human milk, which should be recommended as the ultimate in uh, infant nutrition. Uh, You see that Fasans does very little in the way of recommending uh, that human breast milk is by far the best for infants and instead is going along with the ultra-processed food industry and allowing the synthetic analogues of the natural breast milk to come into the infant formula supply. It's a long-running scandal. Nestle, of course, got into deep trouble about 20 years ago in its promotions of its uh, infant formulas as an alternative to breastfeeding. But now, Fasans is going along with those companies allowing these synthetic materials to go into infant formulas. And our view about it is that this really sets infants and then children and adults up for a life of consuming ultra-processed foods, which are not natural, which are um, engineered chemically in factories and then marketed as uh, cheap junk food. Therefore, infant formula, I think, is the start of a, of a process which is a very good business model for the ultra-processed, the globalised ultra-processed food industry, which uh, gets the, the infants going on the formula. Then they have the uh, processed uh, foods which come afterwards and then they can move right on to Ronald McDonald and KFC and the rest of the junk that uh, is out there in the marketplace. Just remind us Bob who Fasans are and the limit or the the extent of the powers that they have. Well they've got very very considerable power and indeed they're supposed to be an independent regulator but they're in the pocket of the um, processed food industry. You know, if you ask the minister to intervene, and and in this case it's Jed Carney, you don't get a very uh, positive response. Above the 
Food Stamps Australia New Zealand, of course, is a policy-making body. Uh, the Food Forum, which comprises ministers from all the state and territory governments from New Zealand and from the federal government in Australia, sitting as a council, who are advised by senior health department officials or agriculture department officials, because some governments have chosen to uh, put their agriculture ministers rather than their uh, health ministers into this uh, forum. So you've got quite a, a bit of tension there between the interests of the agrochemical companies, the farming community and the producers of food and those who are supposed to be ensuring the safety and protecting the health of Australians. But what they don't do, and which I think is crucial, and we're certainly going to be saying this uh, by this Friday in making a submission on the infant formulas, is that they also should be protecting the uh, health and well-being of communities in Australia. And they pay no attention at all to those matters. You know, we've got a, um, an epidemic of gastrointestinal diseases and things like diabetes, which are a result of uh, poor eating habits and poor diet as well. And we seem to have moved away from the food pyramid, which for a long time was... Uh, based on fresh fruits and vegetables, eating considerable amounts of those natural foods, making sure that you had a balanced diet. Whereas now we seem to be going down this rabbit hole of ultra-processed foods. From the very beginning of a child's life, it's a habit that shouldn't be set. And uh, I think that for Sansas and really the governments as well, the policymakers are really um, just going in the wrong direction you know, deconstructing the food supply. You might recall that um, Michael Pollan, uh, an influential writer on these matters, described ultra-processed foods as food-like substances, which I think is right. <laughs> and uh, if, you buy, if you do happen to be buying a manufactured food, he recommended, and people cheered, said that if it's got more than six ingredients, then you should leave it on the shelf. Well, in the case of infant formula, you've got tens or maybe even hundreds of different uh, ingredients put together without any long-term testing, without any surveillance of the impacts on children, individually assessed on the basis of uh, industry data. This, this is not a system that's working for community health and well-being. And, and I think we just need to give for SANS and the policymakers a good kicking, get them working for the community, not for the industry. Just finally and briefly, Bob, CSIRO, what are they up to? Oh, well, CSIRO, of course, is part of the whole thing as well. They want to commercialise uh, science. They've just dumped $25 million into a new program that wants to pro harness the building blocks of life. They're calling it Advanced Engineering Biology, and it's the latest uh, CSIRO Future Science Platform program. Its main aim is to integrate engineering and biology and to quote them again we're only just scratching the surface of engineering biology's potential for commercial benefit we'll keep that one under surveillance they also already have a synthetic biology program similarly employing a lot of scientists so the scientists especially have a lot of a lot at stake um, there's a lot of kudos there's a lot of money of course being thrown around i'm afraid that the results are not good we need to be prioritising uh, natural food production 
the availability of affordable fresh fruits and vegetables, mother's milk for the health and well-being of the community. And Bob Phelps is the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. In Rasavin Manasile, Isai Nyani Ilayarajavin Isai Kondatam. Celebrating the wondrous music of Maestro Ilayaraja on 3CR every Friday, 8 to 9 p.m. really accentuates and is very complementary to the white Australian domestic policy. Here you have not only a white alliance, but an Anglo-Saxon alliance of the ultimate cultural allies of the United States banding together and the significance that it is aimed at colored peoples, at Asian peoples, at Pacific peoples. This is injecting a horrible racial dimension to this conflict. So I think the U.S. and Australian elites' racist military policies are complementing the increasingly racist domestic policies. So I think, therefore, we really have to look out very, very carefully at this very dangerous synergy between racism on the military front and racism on the domestic front. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Smith Street Dreaming is a special gathering of dancers and musicians that will honour elders, families and community through traditional ceremony in Fitzroy. Featuring Uncle Herb Patton, Arnie Janice Bakes, Jiri Jiri Dance Group, Morandaya Yapenya Dance Troupe, Bandok Dati, the Small Ant Brothers, Uncle Johnny Lovett, Lee Sunnyboy Morgan Show, Empath Soul and Firestarter Chris Hume. In Atherton Gardens, corner of Brunswick and Gertrude Streets, Fitzroy. Saturday, July 15th from 1 till 5pm with free barbecue and coffee on site and entry is free. Smith Street Dreaming is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria, the Smith Street Working Group, Leaps and Bounds Music Festival and Yarra City Council, a 3CR supporter. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at 
the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in. It's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And for our monthly look at all things Pacific, with Nick McClellan, correspondent for Ireland's Business Magazine. And Nick, most times we speak, it's about climate change in the Pacific. Is that what we're going to talk about mainly today? One of the key concerns of Pacific governments, Pacific communities, you know, civil society organisations, church community groups in the Pacific, is that the current United Nations framework, the UN framework, Convention on Climate Change is not really working. Each year there are the Conference of the Parties, the COPs, and that's a a global meeting where people try and negotiate timeframes, commitments, targets to reduce emissions, to fund the transition towards a a decarbonised economy, uh, to deal with the adverse effects of climate change. And, you know, we're now coming up to yet another COP This year, hosted by the United Arab Emirates, which is a major fossil fuel producer, major oil producer, the head of the the president of this year's COP in the UAE is uh, a leading representative of their uh, oil company. There's a lot of concern from uh, community groups, environment organisations and others that this COP is going to be greenwashing uh, the fossil fuel industry. And so while Pacific governments continue to participate in these global negotiations, they're looking more creatively at other areas that they can highlight the need for urgent action to halt the expansion of fossil fuel production. And so many Pacific governments, many Pacific community organisations are moving beyond the COP frame. They're certainly going to be heading off to UAE later this year, but there's a whole range of innovative diplomatic initiatives saying enough is enough, we need action now to halt the production and consumption of fossil fuels. And what are some of those initiatives, Nick? Well, it's in in a whole range of different areas. I mean, the first is probably around areas of international law. The whole COP system, uh, the the Conference of the Parties, is based on what are called nationally determined commitments. So these are voluntary commitments. The whole Paris Agreement on climate change is based around each country saying, all right, we'll do this. There's no sanctions on, on that, really. Um, if you don't meet your targets. And obviously many countries, many, many countries don't meet their targets on emissions reductions. They don't meet their targets on providing climate finance and so on. So there's a whole lot of areas where members, island members of the Pacific Islands Forum are calling for the transformation of international law to address the climate crisis and to try and enforce areas basically over time, change customary law and indeed statute law to uh, enforce some of the commitments that people are making. And there's a few interesting examples. One of the biggest ones is earlier this year, Vanuatu championed a successful resolution that passed through the United Nations General Assembly 
seeking an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. That's the world's highest court. And they want the ICJ to give out an advisory opinion on state obligations on human rights, environment and climate change. It's a really interesting initiative. It was actually started by law students from the University of the South Pacific because the USP um, Law School, the Emulus campus, is in Vanuatu. And so these law students came up with the idea, why don't we ask the highest court in the world, the ICJ, to make a ruling that climate change uh, has impacts on human rights, on the environment, and therefore creates obligations for states who are parties to the ICJ to do something about it. Resolution was successfully passed through the UN General Assembly. Later this year, um, countries are being asked to lodge formal statements on their position for and against this um, at the ICJ. It's going to take a few years to get through the system, but a ruling like this has enormous implications for customary international law. Although it's an advisory opinion, it does weigh pretty heavily. And there are other areas where Forum Island countries are looking for, for legal ad- action. Another example is in 2021, uh, the Pacific Islands Forum passed a a declaration on preserving maritime zones in the face of sea level rise. One of the big challenges is that countries' international boundaries and their exclusive economic zone are determined by land areas or ocean, reefs, islands and so on. Now, if islands disappear or reefs disappear under sea level rise, what are the implications for a country's maritime boundaries? And so the Forum Declaration says, and I quote, we intend to maintain our exclusive economic zones without reduction, notwithstanding climate change sea level rise. Once again, it's a declaration, it's not binding, but it starts to try and push international law to address the questions, what happens to countries with changing coastlines and possibly the loss of low-lying islands? And that's particularly true, obviously, for small island atoll states in um, you know, the Caribbean and the Pacific and the Indian Ocean and so on. These are countries beginning to say the law needs to keep up with the reality of what's happening in the world. What about shipping? We don't hear a lot and we know that shipping is a, a big danger to the environment. Well, indeed, this month at the uh, International Maritime Organisation, which is the, the UN agency, as the name suggests, that's involved in maritime trade and, and so on, there's a major debate going on about whether to put a levy on shipping emissions. Much international shipping uses thick bunker fuels, as they're called, which are heavy fuels, that um, put out uh, an enormous amount of of, uh, carbon emissions. And there's been a lot of discussion about whether there's a, a way of transitioning the shipping industry globally away from the reliance of these heavy bunker fuels towards more sustainable fuels, or even a combination of new technologies that might be less carbon intensive, and so on. And of course, the way to drive change is to put a levy on the use of those heavy bunker fuels to encourage people to investigate other options. Some countries like Denmark, but particularly Pacific Island countries like the Marshall Islands and Solomon Islands, um, have been working for some years to get the International Maritime Organization to um, agree on a levy. Um, It's really uh, not surprising because Marshall Islands is a flag of convenience shipping country. That means that um, a number of countries use the Marshall Islands flag on their ships. So even though it's a tiny Pacific Island country, uh, the Marshall Islands is a major shipping country around the world. 
and they are taking the responsibility that if they're going to maintain their low-lying atoll nation, they need to do something about this, and it gives them an extra weight. Um, so as we speak, the people are meeting in London at the, uh, the regular International Maritime Organization meeting, um, but a number of major countries, the Saudis, China, Russia and others, are opposing these plans to introduce the levy on maritime emissions. And surprise, surprise, guess which other country is involved in trying to block this initiative from uh, Pacific Island countries, from Denmark and others, and that's Australia. Now, Australia is reliant on shipping for its trade, but uh, there's some real anger that although Australia constantly talks the talk about supporting its Pacific partners, when it comes to meetings like this behind closed doors, Australia actively lobbies and campaigns against their interests. Uh, yesterday's Age newspaper has a, um, a front page story about this where um, delegates to the conference are expressing surprise that Australia isn't changing its actions within the UN, the International Maritime Organization, to support the proposals that are coming from the Pacific Islands and other states. The Age quotes one uh, uh, delegate to the conference saying that people had hoped that with the election of an ALP government, things might get better. This person says, quote, under Morrison, Australia was incredibly badly received. Clearly, with the new Albanese administration, there was a hope that they would be more progressive. But Australia has been disappointing at every single meeting. And that's a real challenge because um, Australia is doing a lot in the Pacific Islands region. Uh, Australia has just appointed a new special envoy to uh, um, the Pacific Islands Forum, a guy called Ewan MacDonald, who's been a long-standing public servant, uh, used to be deputy director of AusAid when we had a uh, AusAid, which was our overseas aid uh, organisation. In recent years, uh, he's been the head of the Office of the Pacific within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and he's now been made High Commissioner to Fiji, uh, a special envoy to, for regional affairs. So at one level, Australia is ramping up its diplomacy, but at another level, there's a lot of concern and anger that when it comes to these global negotiations to try and get action around concrete measures to, to reduce emissions, Australia tends to be on the wrong side of the argument. It's all very well to have a, um, someone travelling around talking about these things, but the reality is that Australia is increasing the number of oil and gas production places around Australia and offshore. Absolutely. There are numerous um, fossil fuel proposals on the table, more than 100 within Australia from corporations seeking to begin new oil, particularly gas projects, uh, big ones like the Beedaloo Basin and, and so on. Santos and other corporations are really active in this area. Indeed, sitting on Tanya Plibersek's desk, the Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek, there's currently 28 fossil fuel projects that are, are under contemplation um, through the Environment Ministry as to whether they should proceed. Now, Pacific Island countries have had enough. Last March, Forum Island countries gathered in uh, Vanuatu. Remembering in the first week of March, there were two cyclones that hit the country in the first week. Two cyclones in one week hit Vanuatu. And there was this meeting due to discuss a transition to a, a fossil fuel-free Pacific. And the government decided to go ahead. So as the delegates arrived, they saw the wreckage from two cyclones that had just hit the country in one week. And that meeting in March put forward a proposal uh, which they called the Port Vila Call to Action. Port Vila is the capital of Vanuatu. And they called for um, a fossil fuel-free Pacific and a global equitable phase-out 
of coal, oil and gas. And there's a recognition that this can't happen overnight, but that countries need to start moving more rapidly away from coal, oil and gas, and for countries that have difficulties making that transition, that there be an equitable phase out of that. And this is being picked up by um, key regional ministerial meetings. So in May, just a month or two ago, there was a meeting of ministers for energy and transport from all across the Pacific. And that Pacific Regional Transport and Energy Ministers meeting adopted this call for a fossil fuel-free Pacific. And they want that to be endorsed by all the Pacific Island leaders, including Australia and New Zealand, when they gather next November in the Cook Islands for the annual meeting of the Pacific Islands Forum, the main regional political organisation. And so you have countries particularly like Vanuatu or small low-lying atoll nations like Tuvalu at the forefront of this push for action. There's some really significant uh, moves. Um, Try and develop these networks on a global scale. Tuvalu and Vanuatu are both members of the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, which, once again, is Denmark's involved in, the countries like Costa Rica, a number of small and mid-level powers working together to build up an international alliance to facilitate this managed phase-out of oil and gas production. And some countries in our region, Fiji, even New Zealand, have expressed interest in the process. Surprise, surprise, Australia is not an active member of the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, simply because our government is seeing gas as a transitional fuel away from coal and is boosting gas production. And when I say the government's boosting it, they're allowing corporations like Santos and Woodside and others to open up new gas fields like the Beetaloo Basin and others. And so Pacific governments, once again, are saying enough is enough. And I think, the, you know, in some ways the honeymoon is over for the Albanese government within the region. You know, Pacific governments warmly welcome Australian support in a whole range of areas. Australia has said that they're going to act, you know, in the best interests of the region. But I think people are looking for action rather than rhetoric. That's in a whole range of areas, as we've talked about many times, not just about emissions targets, but also about the finance that's needed and the technology transfer that's needed to help Pacific Island countries adapt and react to the current security crisis that they face. Seems to me, Nick, that Australia's shooting itself in the foot. It wants to continue to be the first partner of choice in the Pacific, but just doesn't seem to understand that they're upsetting everybody. Well, I think they do understand, but um, I think successive governments, both Labor and Liberal, do understand. You know, there's a lot of rhetoric about we're listening you know, to Pacific Island concerns. You hear Foreign Minister Wong, Deputy Prime Minister Miles and many other leaders say, yes, we're listening to Pacific concerns. But the Pacific governments have been saying the thing for about, same thing for about 30 years. Right from the beginning of the COP process, the Conference of the Parties process, the creation of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was 1992, a long time ago, Pacific governments have been raising the same concerns. And one of the, the issues is not that Australia hasn't heard those concerns, It's heard them, it just doesn't agree. And that's because our economy is based on the export of minerals, of fossil fuels, and large mining corporations, transnational corporations in many cases, have captured climate policy. And I think that's a tension for island states. And in this month's Islands Business magazine, I've got um, a story about this very question. And uh, you get ministers like uh, Vanuatu's climate minister, Ralph Reagan-Vanu, and he says... You know, that Australia is Vanuatu's first partner of choice and has been for a long time. We're very close neighbours. 
But he also says on climate policy, there are tensions in the relationship and the biggest tension is around climate change policy. It's the glaring thing that's not right with our partner of choice. One of the big things that really annoys countries like Vanuatu, like Tuvalu and others is that Australia is providing massive subsidies for fossil fuels and fossil fuel industry in Australia. Some $11 billion, it's estimated, a year goes towards subsidising fossil fuels, particularly in rural and regional Australia. Um, And there's no real debate in Australia about whether there can be changes to the fossil fuel subsidies that are happening. Now, this comes at a time where OECD countries, including Australia, have not met their financial commitments to climate fi- international climate finance. You know, by 2020, OECD countries, United States, European Union, Australia and others, um, were supposed to provide $100 billion a year in public and private finance to help countries mitigate the effects of climate change and adapt to adverse climate change. $100 billion a year. Now, they didn't meet that 2020 target, and they only got to some estimates, say, $83 billion, although there's a big debate. Sounds like a lot of money, but globally, it's a drop in the bucket as to what's needed. And indeed, under the Paris Agreement, we're supposed to increase that target from $100 billion a year to maybe 125 or some say $150 billion a year, starting from 2025. That's only a couple of years away. So we didn't meet the 2020 target, The Paris Agreement says we're supposed to ramp up that target starting, you know, the negotiations in the next year or so. And yet Australia isn't meeting its fair share of that global target, which some estimate to be three or four billion dollars of public and private funds. And so there's a significant challenge between the rhetoric of engagement with our Pacific neighbours and the reality that these structural problems, the weakness of our aid program, because all the climate finance currently comes under our highly stressed aid program, the structural power that transnational corporations have in the fossil fuel industry with ongoing mining and export of oil, of gas, of coal, the AUKUS folly, (laughs) which is once again diverting resources into nuclear submarines in a region which has deep concerns about nuclear power, nuclear weapons. The Albanese government has been warmly welcomed in comparison to Morrison but I think that, that the warmth is wearing off. And I think we'll see that in uh, November this year in the Cook Islands, simply because these issues around climate, around nuclear issues, and around development finance are going to be very much front and centre on the regional agenda as uh, our, our region's leaders meet uh, come the first week of November. Nick, could we talk about the impact of climate change on the countries in the Pacific? Thinking about loss of land, access to food, housing, and the impact on the ocean, the warming of the ocean, on the ability to have food supplies from the sea. The ocean issues are are significant, and some of these are are hard to adapt to. And that's why many countries now are talking also about what's called loss and damage, as well as adaptation. You know, the very notion of adaptation is, you know, we we can adapt to the adverse effects of climate change. The Netherlands, a lot of the land area is below sea level, but they've adapted by um, building dikes. Las Vegas is is out in the middle of the desert, but they've adapted to those desert conditions by using air conditioning in every building. But there are equity questions. The Americans can afford to burn energy to keep the casinos cool in Las Vegas, but Pacific Island countries, sub-Saharan African countries, poor countries around the world don't have the resources to adapt in that way. And that's why the debate over loss and damage finance is so important. 
And that's where the impact on the oceans is so vitally important too, because these are large ocean states. Most of our neighbours have enormous exclusive economic zones. Kiribati, which has 829 square kilometres of land, has three and a half million square kilometres of ocean. So what happens with the acidification of the ocean as the uh, deep ocean absorbs carbon dioxide? What happens to the reef ecology with global warming and ocean warming? And what happens with the changing impacts on uh, long-term weather trends in terms of, say, the intensity of cyclones? These are all matters that, that vitally concern our neighbours. Um, the Australian Climate Council, for example, has just put out a new report about the El Nino phenomenon. For the last few years, we've been in the La Nina period, and this is the, the shift of winds and tides across the vast Pacific Ocean, and it's much more complex science, but given time is short, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the El Nino uh, uh, phenomenon, El Nino Southern Oscillation, can change uh, monsoonal rains, can cause droughts and floods in different parts of the, the vast Pacific. And we're heading towards an El Nino later this year, over this coming summer, most likely. Scientists are still tallying the numbers, but it looks like we're going to have an El Nino coming in to replace the La Nina. These are natural phenomena. It's not purely climate change caused, but it's exacerbated by climate change. We could be in for a tough summer. And when you look at what's happening in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, with, say, wildfires in Canada causing massive, massive destruction across Canada and, uh, you know, blanketing in past months the east coast of the United States with smog from the wildfires. It's not just a problem facing developing countries, it's a problem facing the whole globe. And this Climate Council report is pretty sobering reading. It's a scientific report, but it makes some policy recommendations um, simply because changing weather and in the longer-term patterns, and these are longer-term patterns, changing climate, it's a significant security threat. Big challenges for Australia is we're not talking about it. When the Albanese government came in, they commissioned a report from the Office of National Intelligence. That's our security and spook analysts. And they asked ONI to do a report on the security implications of climate change in the, in the future years. Now, the report was completed. My understanding is it's been uh, provided to the government, but all this year it's not been released. Why not? What does this report say that isn't available for public discussion? Sure, there may be some intelligence things that need to be kept secret, but why not a public redacted version of the report being released to the public? And my suspicion is one of the reasons it hasn't been re released is because it suggests that there are enormous security implications for Australia from climate change. And this is not rocket science. In 2018, the Pacific Islands Forum passed a, a declaration called the Boy Declaration, and it said that climate change was the single greatest threat to the livelihoods, the well-being, and the security of Pacific peoples. Not just their livelihoods, not just their well-being, but their security. Climate change is the biggest security threat to our neighboring island countries. And my suspicion is that this ONI report says that's the same for Australia. Obviously, if climate change is the biggest security threat, we should be throwing resources towards addressing that greatest security threat. Instead, of course, we're about to spend $3 billion next year subsidising US shipbuilding yards to build submarines, nuclear submarines, for the growing push for confrontation with China. We're not even building the bloody submarines in Australia. We're funding American shipyards 
because they can't build nuclear submarines fast enough for their own navy so that they can produce some excess ones to give to Australia in decades to come. It's crazy. The resources being allocated to the containment of China are not resources being allocated to the greatest single security threat that we're facing, which is changing climate. The forum meeting this year is going to be an interesting one? It will, and there's lots of issues on the agenda. Um, The meeting will be hosted by the Cook Islands government, Prime Minister Mark Brown, who's the incoming forum chair. It's in Rarotonga, which is the main island of of Cook Islands, and people may recognise the name because um, one of the key outcomes of uh, a meeting some decades ago was the Treaty of Rarotonga. That was the treaty that in 1985 was signed to create the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty. And uh, talking with uh, colleagues in the Pacific, my understanding is that there'll be some sort of ceremony or event to um, highlight the importance of the Treaty of Rarotonga at uh, a time when um, you know there are growing nuclear threats with uh, the sabre rattling we see in Europe around uh, Russia and Ukraine and so on. You know, Pacific Island governments, uh, many of them, have long been active supporters of the abolition of nuclear weapons. New Zealand and nine Forum Island countries, so more than half the membership of the Forum, have ratified the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, not just the NPT, you know, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, but the new treaty to abolish nuclear weapons. So more than half the Forum membership have ratified this treaty. Um, The Albanese government in opposition said that they would ratify TPNW. They haven't done so, and there's a lot of pressure on them. But there's a certain irony that we're going to the home of the Treaty of Rarotonga, which created one of the world's most important South Pacific nuclear-free zones, and yet Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States under AUKUS are proposing to develop nuclear submarine bases in Australia. Currently, the um, Australian government is preparing facilities for six nuclear-capable B-52 bombers to be operating out of Tyndall Air Force Base in the Northern Territory. These are uh, B-52 aircraft capable of carrying nuclear arms. Will they be carrying nuclear arms? Uh, You know, the United States will neither confirm nor deny, and Australia's not asking. And this is a problem. You know, there's a lot of talk that these things are just being rotated through um, Australia. So the submarines will be rotated through Australian ports, the B-52s, But they're building new airstrips, new facilities, new fueling bunkers and so on for these aircraft at Tyndall in the Northern Territory. This is more than just the occasional flight landing, which has been going on for decades. This is about gearing up Australia to be a greater part of the network of installations and facilities right across the Pacific, from here to Guam to Okinawa, involved in the containment of China and rising Chinese military power. And we're being drawn into this with not enough public debate about the implications. But our Pacific neighbours are looking at this, looking at the plan to have nuclear submarines operating out of Western Australia, and it's even proposed some East Coast port, although the people of uh, Port Gambler don't want anything to do with it because unions and communities are organising there to stop a base being built on the East Coast of Australia. But our Pacific neighbours are watching all of this and thinking, where are your priorities? There's a lot of talk about support for the Pacific, but on many of these issues... Australia is on the wrong side of history. And once again, many thanks to journalist Nick McClellan. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.